Good morning, everyone. My name is Diana Clark, and I'm the Associate Rector here at Calvary, and we are delighted to have Jim Axelrod with us this morning. Our theme for adult spiritual formation is stories of call, how people live out their faith in the world. And so we have a great variety of people who are presenting the stories of how they have responded in faith to the work they do in the world. Everything from the relationships with family to the jobs that they do. And so one of the first people I thought of when we uh, started to plan this program was Jim. Um, I got to know Jim because a very dear friend of his was in our congregation in Montclair, and when Clem was dying, uh, I got to know Jim, who was a dear friend of his, and we're delighted to have uh, Hillary Taylor, uh, Clem's wife, here with us. And we will make a contribution in thanksgiving for Jim's presence here this morning to the Clem Taylor Scholarship Fund and Mount Clare High School, which is a fund for budding journalists. Now, I have a couple of quotes that I'd like to read for you, some of which um, you might be f- you might be familiar with some of these. Um, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. That's Frederick Beekner. You found your vocation when you find your deepest joy. That's Dorothy Day. Stephen King says, If God gives you something you can do, why in God's name wouldn't you do it? So uh, Jim is the senior international correspondent for CBS News, and he is here to tell us his story. And we're also going to have an opportunity for questions, and I will pop in occasionally if uh, I see an opportunity to ask you if you can dig a little deeper, but I probably won't need to do that very much. (laughs) Good morning. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here. It is, um, first of all, an exquisite drive over from Montclair, and I'm always up for an exquisite drive on a Sunday morning. Um, it is also a subject that I, I just love to spend time having kick around my head, which is the role of faith in all of our lives and in how we sort of execute the daily business of living. And so I just look forward to coming and sharing some thoughts with you this morning. Um, I'm, I'm a Reformed Jew, so I'm working the other side of the street. But, but this is a time of our year where we are thinking, uh, because there are high holy days, where we are thinking so much about how we live, what kind of human beings we are, And the central focus for us is about redemption and how we can redeem ourselves in the ways we conduct our lives on a daily basis. So it's really perfect timing for me to be sitting here. In fact, I did want to share one thought. I was in services this past week knowing that I'd be here on Sunday. I was completing the rare double of Yom Kippur services at Temple Ner Tamid in Bloomfield, and then 
being in your church on Sunday to speak. And so I came across this passage uh, from a section of our prayer book called In Time of Redemption. And there were just four lines that caught me. Let this be my prayer for personal redemption. Uninterrupted time to breathe and think. Time to ask myself the purpose of all my frantic striving. Time to bask in the radiance of what is. I spend a lot of time frantically striving. And I find I am most connected to life and to what matters and to all the issues of most importance to our souls when I am not frantically striving. And so opportunities like this to come and interact and talk and converse and visit center me because I'm not striving for anything other than connection. Diana said we met really through the, the death of a very close friend, which binds you in a way when that's how you connect and come across uh, people through something like that. And so as we were talking this week about faith, I was thinking a lot about how we first met. I, Hillary's husband, Clem, this dear friend of mine in a TV news producer like no other, really the best there ever was. He was a 60 Minutes producer and a fabulous, fabulous journalist and an even better human being. And I was yesterday actually spending time with, with Clem's best friend. And it was a beautiful stroll around a beautiful golf course. And we got to about the fourth hole. He's a very funny guy, the, the best friend. And so I was laughing the first three holes. And I got to the fourth hole. And it was just, it was so beautiful. It was as if Clem had ordered up the, the weather. And I said to him, can I just ask you a serious question? And he said, sure. I said, faith. Faith. What is faith to you? And when somebody, the friendship with Clem for these two guys, went back literally, I think kindergarten, if not earlier. They were best friends for 55 years when Clem died. I said, so when you think of Clem, especially on a day like today, what does that do to your faith? Do you think of him every day? What do you do about the fact that he was taken from you? What is that? He said, that is my insurance. I know whatever is beyond. He's up there scouting it out. And wherever I go after this life is over, Clem will have been there first. I thought, that's remarkable. That's wonderful. Something for me to hold. He said, I tell it to my kids. Said, Don't be scared. Clem's already scouting out everything. And it's faith. Faith, look, it's easy to be faithful on mornings like today. It's gorgeous. The air is crisp. All is right with the world. Faith really becomes something, for me at least, in my life, in my work, that I have to hold on to when it's not so beautiful. Because that's when we all get tested. And so for my work, 
I basically spend time, since it's the news business, and news is not a job of reporting when the dog bites the man, it's the job of reporting when the man bites the dog. I'm always looking for the exception of the rule. I'm always looking for when things are sort of out of order. I was in Rutland, Vermont last week. They've got a hundred Syrian refugees that are moving to Rutland, Vermont. These are people from Aleppo. You've seen the pictures, right? They are fleeing hell on earth. And they're being taken to Rutland, Vermont. So I go up there. Why? Not because the community is opening its arms to welcome them, but because they don't want them in their community. So I go up to do this interview, and I'm talking to this gentleman who's explaining to me why he doesn't want these people who are fleeing the worst of all possible conditions to come to their bucolic New England village. And I say, well, what's the problem? He said, well, you know, those people, they're going to bring their Sharia law with them. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, they're not vetted. I said, well, actually, you're wrong. For two years, the State Department, Homeland Security, the Defense Department, and the FBI have been in the refugee camps vetting the people who will be part of this program coming over. Now nah, you don't know that. Okay? And they want to bring their Sharia law here. I said, really? I said, when did you come over? When did your people come over? He said, oh, we came over in the 1930s. I said, where are you from? So we came from Italy. I said, oh, so you're mafia. <laughs> and his eyes bulged. And he started, he goes, what do you mean by that? I said, thank you, Don. He didn't get what I was doing. <laughs> and I can't use the exchange either. because <laughs> I knew it was a little over the line. I couldn't help myself. I, I knew it wasn't going to be in the story. But my, my faith, that connection... You know, there's that, that old, there's a quote from W.H. Auden. We must love one another or perish. Which isn't bad for an anti-Semite, right? It's, it's, it's a conflict in my life that my favorite quote comes from an anti-Semite. But I look past that because I believe in the truth of that more than anything else I've discovered on my walk through life. We must love one another or perish. It's all about connection. One of the most profound moments of my life, I've been with two people when they died. My grandmother and Clem. I was with him. He waited till Hillary walked out of the room. You don't feel any tighter connection with anybody, if any of you have been in that position before. You want to be connected up to life? You'd be with someone at the moment of death. And so I believe in this connection 
of all of us as the ultimate insulation against all the very many difficulties all of us confront in our walk through life. And the connection's everything to me. So my faith is rooted in that, and I'll be honest with you, the last couple of months working in the news business have tested my faith as an adult in a way that has never happened to me before. I'm 53 years old. I've grown up in a very privileged, wonderful world. And yet what I've been watching unfold in our country, and this isn't a political thing out here, it's the way we have lost sight of ourselves. The way we can't look at each other and see what unites and bonds and our commonality. So my faith is being tested right now because I've had this absolute rock-solid assurance that if we stay connected with each other, it's all going to be okay. But I've never actually thought the most basic thought. What happens when we start disconnecting? Because I thought it was in all of our hearts just to always strive for the connection. Well, what are we going to do if it's not the case? What, what, what if something sort of gets out in the air and we're suddenly finding ourselves disconnected? That's nothing I have ever really anticipated before. So I'm hoping that we can find our way to a place of reconnection so that we can feel a sense that our faith is put in the right place. Jim, would you, could you tell us something about uh, where your faith was born and uh, in your family and in your community and how it is a seed for who you be- have become? Have you felt called to be a, a journalist? You know, it used to be a proud tradition in this country. It's sort of watered down like everything else that this sort of independent, honest read on what was happening was an essential part of our cultural, you know, the fourth estate. Our culture depended on an information flow. It's been a crazy thing to live through the Internet sort of age and watch this dispersal, and there's not a, a, a place of common information dissemination. But as far as my faith goes, I'm the grandson of immigrants. So second generation. And both of my grandfathers came from Eastern Europe where it wasn't safe to be a Jew. Two generations later, they've got among their grandchildren, doctors, lawyers. My brother's a federal prosecutor. Um, I do what I do. This country has been an amazing place for my family, a place of safety, a place of security, a place to thrive, a place to prosper. I love this country and what we stand for. I was shaped by that opportunity, by that sense of, oh my goodness, you mean if you work hard, study hard, you can achieve a sense of prosperity, safety, and security, and not just me, I can look around and other people who do the same things, land of opportunity, level the playing field, everything. That was the world in which I grew up. Who couldn't be faithful to that? What a terrific opportunity. Greatest country in the world. I've come back. Look, I was in Afghanistan 10 days after 9-11. I covered the invasion of Iraq. I was the last reporter out of Iraq in December 2011. I was in the last Humvee. 
By the way, you need some faith to be in the last Humvee. Because if there was ever a, a vehicle with a bullseye on it, it was the last Humvee out of Iraq. So I've seen what the other options are for places where we live and raise our families and build our lives. This isn't like, think about, I think about this all the time. There's 8 billion people in the world. I think 25% of them live in places without roofs. Like, we're not just talking about 1%. Think about how many generations of human beings have been even before us. You think about how we all live versus every person who has come before us in the history of the world. My goodness. Does it get any better than this? So that's shaped my thinking. When you get that much, you kind of have an obligation to keep that thought from, like here and here. Because what else? What else could you ask for? What more could you want? So what brought you into, when did this, did you have like yeah. an aha moment? Did you have a gradual awakening? To I did. It wasn't great. Um, I'm, first of all, and you'll have to forgive me, uh, here's when I know that I'm, my faith, I'm having a faith, a moment of spirituality or connection to my faith. I cry all the time. All the time. My, yeah, my, <laughs> my daughter was, uh, she's now 20, she'll be 21. Here I go. Uh, never, I, I've never cried on camera, thank God. Um, but I, I uh, yeah, <laughs> well, I cry all the time. And my daughter, who's 21 now, or two weeks from now, she was eight, and we were over some friend's house. And the guys were giving me a little business because I had welled up about something. And my eight-year-old daughter looks at these two 40-year-old men and goes, you know, my father cries more than most men. It's really nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> That's when I always know, though, that this, uh, I, don't, I don't really care where anybody prays. To be connected to a godfulness, a, a sense of how to live in a way that sort of benefits the community and all of us, I'm connected to my godfulness, the sign. I, I'm, this is my biggest blessing in life. I know when I'm in a godful moment because out it comes. And it could be a moment in an interview. That happens all the time. Somebody will say something. I'll be like, okay, as I want, uh, wanted to ask you, it could be watching my children. It could be driving through a beautiful community and seeing the colors of the leaves. It was definitely yesterday. I'm on the golf course because we're talking about clam. But it's great. I love having that, that completely, I mean, it is absolutely 100% reliable. If I have that, I know I'm having a Godful moment. It's great. As I say, it's my biggest, biggest um, blessing and gift. So did you have a Godful moment um, that called you to be a uh, 
No. Journalist? No, no. I've had plenty since, thank you. And so maybe you're not always aware when you're being moved in ways that you should be moved and that I do think we all have something in it. It's not rational. Our lives are not all rational. And you've got to follow the calling, right? You've got to follow something in here, even if you don't understand it. Constantly thinking about that. I'll tell you about a, a, an idea that I'm working on right now that is nothing more than following this. Because at 53, one of the things I'm finally lucky enough to understand is that process of saying, oh, that's uncommon. I think I need to follow that a little bit. So I was teaching school. I got out of college. Um, I graduated college. I'm, chronologically, I'm 22. Developmentally, I'm like 14. I had spent four years having a lot of fun in college. And I taught school. Uh, to let the dust settle. I, wa I knew I wanted to do something productive. I didn't quite know sort of long-term what I wanted to do. So I taught school for two years in New Orleans and one year in Philadelphia. And then I went back to grad school because I thought I was going to be a history professor. And um, it's 1988. I'm watching a lot of the Dukakis first Bush coverage. In fact, I'm watching it to the exclusion of studying. And I'm thinking to myself, maybe instead of covering political history, writing political history, I should be covering politics. So I made a little bit of a left turn and got into this business. But a lot of it was, eh, if I stay a college professor, am I going to make enough money? Um, am I going to have the success I'm looking for? It's a 26-year-old person crunching all of these things. And so I kind of found myself into found my way into television, I often ask myself, if the path had been newspaper reporter, what if I followed that? I don't know. Because, you know, the thing about television, you know, it gives you the little red light thing, right? Like, oh, I'm on TV, right? Which is fool's gold. Ultimately, really worthless. In fact, corrupting and corrosive in many ways. We've got some real buttes in my business, all right? <laughs> So, but what I was able to do as a result of working for CBS was, you know, I don't know if you all watch CBS Sunday morning or we still, yeah, I don't know if you DVR CBS Sunday morning. There you go. Now the hands go up. The point of all of this is I found myself, I think about this all the time. Never mind, I don't dig ditches for a living, right? Like, what do I get paid to do? I get paid to tell people's stories. And so if you're a connection junkie, is there a better way to spend your time? You actually, I mean, Clem used to talk about this all the time. Let me get this straight. I get to go to interesting places and talk to interesting people about things that matter. I get paid to do so. And what else could you possibly be looking for? So I end up in this thing that matches perfectly, even though I didn't set out to do it. And even though when I first had an instinctive sort of urge to go do it, it wasn't pristine and pure. Now, I mean, this is the beautiful thing about life. Keep walking, keep your eyes open, your ears open, take it all in, allow yourself to grow, follow this. I ended up in a place where, oh my goodness, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And, and this is, the, listen, five, six, within the last four or five years, I've definitely turned to my wife and said, what else could I do? Like, what else could I do? This doesn't feel right, or I'm not getting ahead, or I'm not 
where I want to be with all of this stuff. And the reality is, just like turn this off sometimes. Like, stop. Stop with this. And stop with the calculus. And where's it going to take me? Where's it going to leave me? Let this go. Just follow your bliss. Like follow your sense of direction, of call, and of pull. It's going to take you wonderful places. So let me ask you um, one more question, and then I want to open up the, uh, to the congregation to see if there are any questions there. Have you had, when your, your faith obviously informs the way you do your work, do you encounter or have you encountered, and perhaps you can think of one instance, um, an ethical dilemma um, when you are reporting or sent to do a job? I'm always pretty clear on what the ethic, you know, people say all the time, you know, are you ever interviewing somebody and you want to, you know, strangle them? or her, or whatever. And I'm very clear on this. My job, I I don't think you folks, you don't necessarily care what I think, but I think you care what I see, what I feel. And it's not my job. No one's tuning in to watch a journalist sort of tell you what they think in in a sort of linear, simplistic way. But there's a sensibility of whatever's going on. And if somebody is a horrible human being, my, all my job is, is to portray that, is to allow that so that the viewers can make up their own minds and not to, only to objectively, honestly, ethically reflect the reality of the situation I've encountered. That's different than, I'm going to nail this guy. All right? That's why that exchange with that fella in Rutland, it can't be on TV. That's not, that's not what people are tuning in to CBS News to hear. I do need to explain that in this community there are some objections to why these people are coming here and, and these objections have an interface with a larger national conversation we're having. Um, it's kind of interesting to me that there's a Syrian-American businessman there, Mohammed Khalil, who's Mike Khalil to most people in Rutland, and has become an incredibly successful realtor. And he's been there 25 years. And I think it's fascinating to talk to this guy who's like, yeah, I don't know. It's a little weird. Like, they love me, but they don't love these people I'm asking them to accept. That's such complex stuff. That's my job, is to be able to present the complexity and allow you folks to become more informed about things so that you can make up your own mind. But you don't want to hear me, you know, shove my opinion about anything down your throat. That's malpractice on my part. So that, that's, but I do want to share one thing to you, and then I'd love to get some questions. So we're talking about faith. Here's the biggest. Here's the biggest test of faith I've ever had professionally, and I'm in the middle of it right now. Over the summer, I did a story for Sunday morning on rare diseases. There are 7,000 diseases medicine and science classifies as rare because they afflict fewer than 20,000 people. Okay? So this is not a great 
category of diseases for you to be diagnosed with because when so few people are affected, there's no incentive for R&D. So these are diseases which you, you are diagnosed with. There's no cure coming. Okay? So in the reporting of this story, which is fascinating enough, I'm assigned to go meet uh, a family in Greenwich, Connecticut. Thank you. Look, this is, I hope it doesn't put you, to me, uh, right now I am awash in spirituality. So, this is great. Thank you. So I'm assigned to go meet this family in Greenwich, Connecticut. They've got a five-year-old. Okay? Five-year-old's got vanishing white matter disease. I know, none of you have ever heard of it. I'd never heard of it. Why would you? There's 500 people in the world who have it. Now, white matter is sort of a neural transmitter. I have an impulse. I want to drink the water, right? So I have that thought. Why does my hand move to the cup? It has to travel down this, the neural impulse travels down this, the connector is white matter, okay? We all have it. Now, if you bang your head, your white matter in your brain actually disintegrates, and it comes right back. It regenerates instantly, okay? Little Sam, five years old, when he was two and a half, banged his head, and that's the last time his legs ever worked. I mean, he was wrestling with his father, fell off the bed, Something that's happened to all of us playing with kids. And he never walked again. Because his white matter doesn't regenerate. So I go up to interview Sam. And I sit down on the floor of his playroom. And I realize in about seven seconds that I am in the presence of something I've never been in presence of in my life. This kid has the most angelic smile. His whole being radiates vitality and purity in a way I've never... Listen, I've got three kids. I love my kids. I think they're special. They're not Sam. Little Sam Buck, who's not going to live past 10, is the most alive kid. He's the most alive kid I've ever been in the presence of. So... I do this story. You can go to the webpage, cbsnews.com, punch in, go to Sunday morning and punch in Jim Axelrod rare diseases. You can watch the story. You'll see Sam. You'll have the same reaction. And I develop a friendship with his mother and father. 
and I'm realizing that what I am is in a faith test. How? How can Sam get six years? How can Sam get seven years? And I get whatever I'm going to get. Doesn't make sense. And I've been, this was in August. The interview was actually last spring. It's been six months now. I can't stop churning this through. I, I'm going to visit him this afternoon. I, I, I want to spend as much time in the presence of this spirit as I can while I have the chance. My wife, who's a wonderful human being, has said to me, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. I'm like, I know. I'm going to Greenwich. I'll see you in a couple hours. I've, she's come, taking my youngest son. I took my daughter last weekend when she was home for college break. And I'm taking my son who's home for college break this afternoon. Everybody is going to be exposed to this. And I'm thinking, I've I got to write a book. I've got to do something so that the lessons of how do you maintain, how can you be so alive when you are facing death, that stuff, and my book agent has said to me, you're nuts. Nobody is going to read this. And, and by the way, my book agent is the agent who did Tuesdays with Maury. He goes, Jimmy, I know what sells when it comes to dying people. This is not going to sell. David, thank you very much. I love you. You're wrong. And I'll talk to you in a little while. So right now I'm involved in working out this test of faith about little Sam and also this test of faith of having somebody say to me, nobody's interested in the lessons of his life. Because I know somewhere, I don't know if I have the skill to do it. I think I do. I understand stories. But I know there are lessons in how this kid is spending the six or seven years he has on this earth that all of us need to learn or at least be reminded of. Because, come on, what, what, think about what can screw up our days. It's laughable sometimes, what sends us down the path of despair. I'm not saying there's real stuff, please understand that. But sometimes, I mean, I think myself, I'll drive home, white knuckles, get out in the driveway, and then I'm like, what, am, what was so wrong in my life? What, now I get to walk into my beautiful house and look at my beautiful wife and my beautiful children. So Sam is helping me root myself in the presence of my life. And I think it's a reminder for all of us. His parents said to me the other day, you know, you know, our lives have gotten a little less blurry because we're focused and we're not distracted. And it's amazing what now, our bar is so high for a problem and these are all things I think we all need to be reminded of. And little Sam's going to be the conduit for those lessons. And so, so his life is going to have meaning far beyond his six or seven years. That's what I'm in the middle of right now. Anybody have a question they'd like to ask? If I heard your question correctly, ma'am, you were asking me that I have somebody in my life who was particularly spiritual or religious, a mentor. 
I wouldn't say a mentor. So my grandmother was raised in an orphanage, and she lived down the block, and she lived, she just would have been 102 this past Tuesday. She lived to 93. And she always radiated a sense of gratitude. I mean, she was born like in Western Canada, an orphanage, like worked hard. Her husband was in a car accident. She had to tend to him for 60 years. I mean, this woman. And she would come then and sit at family functions and watch 20 or 30 members of my crazy family with the most contented smile on her face. Life had been so good to her in how it all turned out. And yet, I'm looking at the bullet points on her life's resume, and I'm thinking, wow, Nana, this is a real trick. How are you pulling off the contentment and the gratitude when I know <laughs> what it's come from? And I think she instilled in me a sense of choice in how we view the world, okay, and what we do with hardship and difficulty. And I do think adversity reveals character. I mean, I really, it's one of the sort of, that's in there deep, core concept. Adversity reveals character. And by the way, I haven't always handled adversity very well, like, but you keep getting shots at it. So in terms of a mentor, in terms of shaping my orientation in the world, I would definitely say it was, it was my grandmother's choice that life, life's beautiful. Yeah, the question was, if you're leave, living one of these sort of peripatetic lives where you're here and then there and then there and then running around, and how do you stay focused? How do you stay anchored? So I, this thing here, I, I, I could go on about, I hate this thing, okay? I hate this thing. Um, and what has happened, I feel, it's kind of ironic. We live in this age where we've never been more connected, and I think we've never been less connected in certain ways because we can all sit there and manage our brands on Facebook, but what are you really doing in terms of connecting with your neighbor? So, I, and don't get my kids started about, oh, I know, Dad, it's the worst thing in the world. Plus, it really... It undermined the news business. Like, this phone is going to put us out of business. Like, no question. Because whatever news you want, you type in Google, you get the, basically the news from the outlet that reinforces your own worldview anyway, and it tells you what's going on, and all right. Here's what's great about the phone. I mean great. A couple of these, which I give my kids, like, your thumbs are going to fall off. Like, stop. Like, what? I can connect, and we do. We have a... We have a hashtag. So we have this hashtag. Oh, it's so embarrassing. Axelrod Strong. And it's me and my wife, my daughter who's away at college, my son who's away at college, and our 13-year-old who we have chained to the couch and we're never letting him grow up. <laughs> and all the time we get conversation going. And I can't, I, the, uh, listen, I can... I've conversed from all over the place with this thing, and I stay connected. And the power of dipping in 
dipping out, just it's the most rooted thing. I have been so adrift at times during my career because before this, you know, you go somewhere, you're out with your pals, you're focused on your story. Dina's got it all taken care of at home. I know that. I mean, I was on, during the invasion of Iraq, I was stuck on a bridge in a Humvee that stalled out. I won't, I won't, bore, you, I won't bore you with the story, but I was in a situation curled up in the back of a Humvee where I wasn't sure I was getting off that bridge. And my wife was seven and a half months pregnant. And all I could think of was, well, this is a little weird. I mean, as I was, I needed to change when I got out of the Humvee. And, and as I was in the middle of this deep fear, I just remember thinking, wow, this is really weird. Like 7,000 miles away in Montclair, New Jersey, my wife is waking my children up to go to school. And I'm pinned down in the back of this Humvee, and I'm not sure I'm getting off this bridge. That creates an isolation and so this, this thing, this phone, this device has closed the gap on that thing and enabled me to, I mean, it's, it's a crazy thing. My brother lives in Paris, right? My nephew turned eight. I'm sitting in a parking lot talking, singing happy birthday to him on FaceTime. How great is that? Never existed ten years, up until five, ten years ago. So... Thank you, technology. Right? That's the one thing. It's made me, in a way, a better human being to be able to stay connected through technology. Yes, yeah. Have you ever had an assignment where you're That's a great question. Most of the really scary stuff I did, I did before I think they felt they had the agency to express that. So I said, oh, that's dad's job. So there were seven and five when um, I went to Iraq. My daughter's sixth birthday, I missed because I was in Afghanistan. Um, they, let's see, 2011, we're getting up there a little bit. I won't go to a dangerous place now. I mean, I'm not going to go to Iraq. Put it that way. I'm not going to Baghdad. Um, and if there's a consequence to my career, so be it. I really need to be an old man. I really need to be a grandfather. So that's, that's kind of, they don't, they're not going to have to ask. Great question. So you, we got to Afghanistan. Here's the secret to covering bad places. You want to go with the military. Right? That's always, you want your friendlies. right? But when 9-11 happened, there was that period before the bombing started where officially there were no friendlies in Afghanistan. So we show up, and we end up in this like, you, you fly to Tajikistan, we came over in this helicopter, this old Soviet helicopter, that was in such a bad state of disrepair, there was electrical tape on the rotors. I swear to you, I'm like looking, I'm like, oh no. We couldn't get enough lift to go over the mountains. We had to go like between the mountains. So again, faith. Um, 
we land and we drop, like I land in a place that looks like it's, you know, 500 years ago and that's the capital. So we have to drive to like another two hours down this road. I'm in this place called Jabal Siraj, which was medieval. I mean, it's crazy. And I think the annual income in dollars for the people, they were like $80 a year. So here come the Americans, and we're paying security $100 a day. Okay? Now, you're going to get good security. They also want to keep you alive for the next payday. So their interest is in keeping us safe. So I'm in a place where, let's put it this way, I don't, on Friday night, I'm not looking for a place to have Shabbat services, okay? Like, I'm keeping it low. I don't need anybody to know, like, where I, where, what I do on Saturdays. And yet, in the midst of all of this, there is our driver, a local hire, a guy by the name of Fazel, who is, as the four, four and five weeks unfold, the sweetest, deepest, most thoughtful guy I could possibly ever hope to spend time with in a situation like that. And I kept telling him, I need you to come to America. We were, because I would be making breakfast. They'd be like, what is this? I'd be making omelets. They're like, well, this is an American breakfast. You got to come have it. I said, can, can you, do you want to bring your wife by and we can make, and he was, I didn't realize I had sort of crossed this cultural tripwire. So I'm having all of these great conversations, but Fazel is like, well, you teach me how to make the omelet, right? Because it, it was, there wasn't going to be that kind of socialization. We sat and talked about everything under the sun over these four and five, six weeks worth of breakfasts. Um, but never sort of, he knew I was not of this place. But I think there was such a lovely respect there when I think about all these places, what, I've, what I choose to carry with me is my, my breakfasts with Fazl. As, because there was a connection on a human level that went beyond, beyond the religious. From your faith, and like you talk about the story with the young man, and that was probably more extreme, but from some of your other experiences, what do you do to disconnect from some of those? How do you, how do you have your downtime? I play golf which is a deeply spiritual exercise for me. 45 years. If somebody told you, hey, guess what? You're going to do something for 45 years and you're not going to get any better. Would, <laughs> would you do it? Actually, this is a wonderful question. I, I, I want to thank you for asking it because it actually wraps up just about everything we've been talking about this morning. I don't. And, and, and let, me, let me just take this one step further. I don't want to disconnect from any of these experiences. Now, the challenge is how do you integrate them in a healthy way that's not corrosive or destructive? But I think these profound experiences you have, the ones that move you, that shake you, that cause you to maybe even go to a point of a, of a faith crisis, are the ones that help refine you and define you and sharpen your sense of what this whole experience is supposed to be about. So my kids probably suffer most when I've had a profoundly moving experience because I want to process it, I want to understand it, I want to integrate it, and then I want to tell them all about it. They're fine with the first three steps. 
by the way. So I know we're out of time. It is very, very important for me to say to all of you from in here, thank you so much for spending this time and letting me come and cry in your chair. Thank you, Jim.